Welcome to the Redeemer East Harlem podcast. We pray this message leads you both to know and show the love of Christ in all areas of life. We will now dive into our scripture reading, followed by this week's message. Today, God speaks to us from the gospel according to John. Very truly, I tell you, Pharisees, anyone who does not enter the sheep pen by the gate but climbs in by some other way is a thief and a robber. The one who enters by the gate is the shepherd of the sheep. The gatekeeper opens the gate for him, and the sheep listen to his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all, out all his own, he goes on ahead of them, and his sheep follow him because they know his voice. But they will never follow a stranger. In fact, they will run away from him because they do not recognize a stranger's voice. Jesus used this figure of speech, but the Pharisees did not understand what he was telling them. Therefore, Jesus said again, Very truly, I tell you, I am the gate for the sheep. All who have come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep have not listened to them. I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. They will come in and go out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The hired hand is not the shepherd and does not own the sheep. So when he sees the wolf coming, he abandons the sheep and runs away. Then the wolf attacks the flock and scatters it. The man runs away because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me. Just as the father knows me and I know the father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep that are not of this sheep pen, I must bring them also. They too will listen to my voice, and there shall be one flock and one shepherd. The reason my father loves me is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. This command I received from my father. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So this metaphor of sheep and shepherd uh, is likely one that we've heard of. Um, if, even if you are uh, not a Christian or not entirely sure what you believe about the Christian faith, it's likely a metaphor that you've heard about coming from the Bible. Uh, this metaphor of Jesus being a shepherd um, is actually an interesting uh, concept, though, when we consider what the story of uh, sheep and shepherd is communicating. Because on the one hand, as we're going to see in a moment, uh, this whole metaphor of Jesus being a shepherd and us being a sheep, uh, for some, I think, is actually an incredibly offensive metaphor, and I'll explain why. Uh, but it can also be an incredibly encouraging one if we have ears to hear. And I would even go so far as to say that if we don't have both the offense and the encouragement of this metaphor, then we actually lose what we consider to be the gospel, the message of redemption. And I would suggest that many of us here who are Christians, uh, and certainly many of us who maybe, again, don't quite know what we believe about the Christian faith, I'm going to guess that more than likely, at times, when we think about the gospel message, we tend to err in one of two ways. We either tend to focus too much on the offense that's being presented here, or we focus too much on the encouragements, and it might sound odd, but without this, uh, this tension of holding both the offense and the encouragement, again, we lose kind of the central claim of the Christian faith. 
With that in mind, we're continuing our series, A Public Faith, which has been a series looking at the book of John. Uh, by, as we go through, we're examining some of the core claims of Christianity. And today I want to see what Jesus is communicating to us through this uh, metaphor of Good Shepherd to see how it points to one of these central claims of the Christian faith. And uh, to do so, let's consider the offense of this metaphor, the encouragement of the metaphor, and then finally the person of the metaphor. All right, so first, the first, uh, the, the offense of the metaphor. So we need to begin by considering uh, how significant this metaphor is throughout the Bible, this idea of shepherd and sheep. Throughout the Old Testament, you see over and over again that God is referred to as a shepherd. Uh, and of course, famously in passages like Psalm 23, uh, which tells us that the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. But even to go beyond you know, famous passages like that, we see this metaphor used dozens and dozens of times. In fact, the idea of God being a shepherd and we being his sheep is actually one of the central metaphors of the Bible. Why? Well, shepherding would have been a very central part of life during biblical times. Um, and of course, uh, not everyone at the time would have been a shepherd, but many would have absolutely understood much of the overlap in this metaphor, which is, of course, not necessarily the case for us. Many of us do not have firsthand experience uh, with shepherding. And it's also the case that uh, unlike some of, the, uh, some of our more primarily currency-based economies today, it's important for us to know that the sheep-shepherd dynamic uh, showed something, uh, that the sheep, often because the owner of the sheep uh, often saw their actual wealth wrapped up in the sheep itself. So this, this metaphor is communicating on multiple different levels. These sheep were very valuable, and a lot of the dynamics between a sheep and a shepherd would have been pretty intuitive to those who were uh, hearing this for the first time. And I say all of that because since we don't have that firsthand experience of shepherding, I do wonder if we sometimes have wrong assumptions about the metaphor itself. And so instead, we start importing some of our own assumptions based on maybe cultural pictures of how we imagine sheep-shepherd dynamics to go. And so what I want to do just for a moment is to give you the kind of the full scope of the metaphor being described here, how people would have understood this metaphor. Um, because unless we hear the full scope, I don't know that we'll fully grasp how offensive for many this metaphor could be. Why is it offensive? Well, sheep are stupid. Uh, and I don't mean this to be mean, but they're like literally stupid. They um, are completely helpless. They have no idea how to actually care for themselves. They are very easily deceived. Uh, and when they are deceived, they're often led astray to their own peril. Uh, they are completely and totally dependent on the shepherd to protect them and to provide for them and to care for them. And on top of all of that, they had very, very particular needs. And in order to care for the, the sheep well, shepherds needed to make sure that they went to good pastures, right, where they could graze. Uh, they had to make sure that they were near gentle water, streams where they could drink because they couldn't handle anything more than something very gentle. And so even in passages like um, Psalm 23, the famous uh, psalm, when it says that he makes me lie down in green pastures and leads me beside quiet waters, again, we hear that and we just interpret it as this very serene scene. But that scene is actually describing survival and necessity because of how helpless the sheep are. They need calm waters. 
Otherwise, they'll drown. And another interesting verse in that psalm uh, that gives another fuller picture is that whole notion of your rod and your staff, they comfort me. What is that? Well, the rod was a stick that was used to protect the sheep against predators. Again, they were very vulnerable animals. And the staff, though it was often used as a a walking stick for the shepherd, um, it also was used to literally move and sometimes swat the sheep because, frankly, they were too dumb to know that they needed to stay together, and if they wandered off, they'd be in trouble. So all that said, you know, again, I started off by saying that this metaphor for some can actually be quite offensive. Why? Because the Bible is making it very clear that we are sheep, that we are dumb, We are helpless. We are spiritually lost. We are easily deceived. We wander off to our own peril, and we don't even know how much is required for us to have even the most basic of necessities in our lives. Now, in our our modern era, an era that is shaped by the assumptions of the enlightenment and the grandness of humanity, such ideas as what I just described can be horribly offensive. And the reason is that humanity realistically and honestly, has accomplished a lot, especially in the last couple centuries. The knowledge and the insight and the technology and the achievements of humanity, even in just the last 50 years, have exceeded the expectations of previous millennia. I still cannot get my head around the introduction of AI. My head still can't comprehend it, and that happened like 10 minutes ago. Recent achievements of humanity are staggering. This is another dumb example, but just a couple weeks ago, um, I was reminded of how much has changed even in just my lifetime. I was watching the movie Air. Maybe some of you have seen it, but the movie's basically about the marketing team that made Nike what it is through a, a, a monumental deal with Michael Jordan. But all this took place, the story takes place in 1984, and one of the main characters is in a car rental, And he's so excited about the car phone that's in it. And I'm watching this, and I'm just thinking, sheesh, how ridiculous is it that to remember minds being blown over a car phone? Uh, I started thinking about some of the other, you know, modern technology advances. I remember when iPods first came out, um, thinking that they were so stupid. Like, this is never going to catch on. And that was in 2001, which, again, feels like 15 minutes ago. But the point just being... Because we have accomplished so much as humans, we actually think very highly of ourselves, of our accomplishments, of our potential. But then the Bible comes and says, eh, you're sheep. You always have been. You always will be. The smartest and the greatest sheep among you are still sheep. And if we're realistic, we should also be willing to acknowledge that no matter how much we think we know, it can't come close to what is actually possible to know. You know, one, one preacher used to make this comparison that if you were to think back to yourself 20 years ago, uh, you will find someone that you are almost certainly embarrassed by, right? Like that person 20 years ago made terrible decisions, did stupid things. But guess what? In another 20 years, you're going to look back on yourself right now and feel the same way. You are currently a future embarrassment to your future self right now in real time. Plus, we live in a time when we we think, again, that we're so evolved, so enlightened, so knowledgeable, but people have thought that for generations. 
but just look back on peoples and cultures and events from 100 years ago. You know, we look back on them and we think, how awful, how unenlightened they were back then. But guess what? In another 100 years, people are going to look back on us now and they're going to think the same thing. How awful, how unenlightened they were. And the point simply being, we are talking about this, this whole notion of the reality that none of us will ever really be able to know all that it, there is to know, no matter how much we think of ourselves, in the end, in the grand scheme of things, we're nothing more than sheep. And the Bible over and over again emphasizes this, especially in relation to our spiritual state, that we are spiritually helpless, that like sheep, we will wander off away from safety and toward danger based solely on our whims of the moment. Our scope of knowledge and wisdom is so limited, no matter how much we achieve, we can't possibly make the right decisions for the right reasons in the grand scheme of things. We think too highly of ourselves, our nature, our abilities, and the consequence of that deception will be that we again wander off to our own destruction, out of the care of the shepherd. We will convince ourselves that our decisions, decisions void of the, the leadership of the shepherd, are worthy, wise, and worthwhile decisions because, again, based on what the Bible is attempting to communicate, we are just dumb sheep. We don't know nearly what we think we know, and until we are humble enough to realize it, we are always going to be our own worst uh, enemies. But if that's the only thing that the Bible had to tell us about this idea of sheep, I do actually think that would be an incredibly dehumanizing and degrading idea. Fortunately, that's not all the Bible has to communicate to us through this notion of sheep. Because not only is there an offense to the metaphor, but there's also great encouragement that comes through the metaphor. Let me explain to you what I mean. So though we are uh, helpless and in need of a shepherd, we should not experience that claim as only offensive because in reality, the character of the shepherd actually reveals to us and reframes the position of the sheep. Let me show you what I mean. Look at uh, verse 3 of our passage. It says this. What are we told about the shepherd here? It says that the gatekeeper opens the gate for him, and the sheep listen to his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. Let me pause there for a minute. The shepherd does not think little of the sheep, meaning the shepherd does not resent the sheep, doesn't ignore the sheep, and no matter how helpless they might be, the shepherd does not leave them on their own. And there's a few things that we see right there in just that short passage. First, it says that the shepherd knows the sheep by name. I think in Western cultures, uh, we often lose the significance of names, but in many cultures, especially ancient cultures, names meant something significant. And so when it says that Jesus, as the shepherd, knows our name, it's saying something more than he just knows how to uh, distinguish us from others, but rather it's communicating that Jesus really knows us knows us in profound and meaningful ways. The shepherd knows his sheep. The shepherd is not distant or disconnected from the realities and experiences and deepest identities of the sheep. Rather, he's intimately aware of his sheep. But then it goes on to say that when he, though he, even though he knows our name, when he calls our name, if he is our shepherd, verse 4 tells us, 
that when he has brought out all of his own, he goes on ahead of them, and his sheep follow him because they know his voice. It's fascinating that not only does the, does the shepherd know the sheep, but as one has a relationship to this shepherd, the sheep actually begin to learn the voice of the shepherd. And this is actually a very real aspect of shepherding. The sheep actually do get to know and learn the voice of the shepherd and respond accordingly when they hear that voice. And so there's a relational dynamic that's happening between the sheep and the shepherd. The sheep are not just dumb sheep. The sheep are cared for, loved, and fully and completely known. And the sheep can then begin to identify and follow the voice of their shepherd, the one who is protecting them, caring for them, loving them. This is a significant relationship being described here. But there's something else that jumps out at me in this, um, this passage about this, around this, this notion of voices that the sheep are inevitably going to hear. And there's two other voices that are described in the passage that we just heard read. And I want to just draw our attention to both of those voices for a minute. Because those two voices, those two other voices that we hear about in the passage are significant for us when we are learning what it means to actually trust the voice of the shepherd. And one of those voices is a, a nefarious voice, right? a, a voice that seeks to harm. And then there's another voice that is an insufficient voice. All right, let me show you what I mean in both of those. First, let me consider the, the, the nefarious voice, the, the voice that seeks to harm. In verses uh, 7 to 10, we see this nefarious voice, and it says this. It says, Very truly I tell you, I am the gate for the sheep. All who have come before me uh, are thieves and robbers. But the sheep have not listened to them. And then goes on in verse 10 and says that the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and to have it in the full. See, there, there are voices that attempt to draw the sheep away that seek them nothing but harm. There are those who are calling us, you know, bring in this metaphor, calling us away from the shepherd promising us safety and protection. But in the end, those voices are voices that only seek to steal, to kill, and to destroy. And those voices, if we do not know the true shepherd's voice, might very well sound like trustworthy voices. Right? These voices, you know, I kind of import this into today. These voices are often culturally formed voices telling us to stop trusting the shepherd in various areas of our lives. And they sound so appealing. And yet these voices are leading us toward destruction. I mean, sometimes those are explicit voices telling us to just directly not trust or believe in this Jesus, the, the, the good shepherd, to not trust the Christian faith. Those voices, of course, are not worth, are, are the kinds of voices that Jesus is telling us are not worth listening to. That we should, uh, these voices that would tell us that we should never submit to or follow anyone or obey anyone, including this shepherd. Instead, calling us to this freedom to chart our own path, to follow our own desires, to liberate ourselves from the, the protection of the flock and to go find ourselves, to wander off from the protection of the shepherd. But then there's other nefarious voices, right? problematic voices that might not be so explicit about telling us to reject the shepherd, but maybe they're more like voices of Satan in the garden when he tempts Adam and Eve. Do you remember how that conversation went? You know, in the garden... 
Satan does not tempt Adam and Eve by telling them to just straight up reject God and all of his commands. Instead, he gets them to question God. Remember what he says. He says, did God really tell you? Did he really tell you not to eat from the tree? Again, those voices might not be as direct, but they're getting us to question the character of God. And all of that to say that there are going to be voices that seek to undermine the voice of our shepherd, voices that most directly seek to call us out from his protection. But then there's another voice that's here, and it's a voice that we'll just consider to be an um, insufficient voice. It's not nefarious, not seeking us harm, but it's an insufficient voice. See, there were these hired hands that we just heard read about. Other uh, translations of the Bible call them hirelings. They were hired people, by, they were hired by the shepherd to care for the flock. Uh, they were not the shepherd, but they watched out for the sheep in a more limited capacity when the shepherd wasn't present. Right? Meaning they weren't uh, seeking harm to the sheep, but they weren't really as committed to the sheep as the shepherd would be. And so when things got hard or things got dangerous, they'd be gone. Their protection was not nearly as secure as that of the shepherd. And so in this way, they might care for the sheep, but they will never care for the sheep in the deepest kinds of ways. Now, there are various hired hands that serve in shepherd-like uh, capacities in all of our lives. Now, as an example, if you are part of our church, the Bible talks about pastors and elders being shepherds, which is true. But as a pastor, I'm actually more like a hireling. You know, I cannot be your shepherd the way that Jesus is your shepherd. I know this because I know this is going to be super shocking for some of you. You're about to be stunned. But I am a broken, sinful, selfish person just like the rest of you. I am a sheep. I am as much of a sheep as all of us here. You know, the other leaders of our church, Abe and Gustavo and Luis and the church staff and your CG leaders, they are all broken, sinful, selfish people who at best are nothing more than faithful hirelings who do not care about your good like Jesus does. And are these voices harmful or problematic? No. But it becomes a problem when we start to hear other people's voices as though they were the true shepherd's voice. That's where so often we can be so hurt by those who are in some kind of leadership over us, in some kind of shepherding or care over us. We want to hold those people to account and ensure that shepherds are caring the best they can. But they will never care about you or me like the good shepherd cares about us because they are nothing more than hirelings. And you know, this even goes beyond just leaders in churches. If we broaden our horizons beyond just the church, who are the people that we look to that genuinely do care about us, but in the end, they are insufficient to provide for us what only the true shepherd can provide? You know, for some of us, maybe it's your spouse. Maybe your spouse, they very well, they're, they're a good partner, someone that you can rely on, someone that you can trust, someone that you can be vulnerable with. But if you have functionally made them your shepherd, when at best they are faithful hirelings, they are going to disappoint you. For others, maybe you do the same with friends. Maybe you have really good friends with whom you can share deep relationships, right? Those who uh, in various ways have loved you well. 
But if we have functionally made them our shepherd, when they are at best faithful hirelings, they will eventually disappoint you. For some, maybe it's your, your therapist or your counselor. I will say that we are strong believers in counseling and therapy around here. Go to counseling. Find a good counselor trained to care for you well. One in whom that you can confine and process things with. One that is trustworthy where you can be vulnerable. But in the end, right, even that good pursuit, the counselor will fail you if you seek to hear from the counselor what only the true shepherd can give because at best, a counselor can be nothing more than a faithful hireling. And what's the difference? Look at verses uh, 14 through 18. All right, here's where some of the most significant differences are between the true shepherd and a hireling. Verse 14 tells us, it says, I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me. Just as the father knows me and I know the father and I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep that are not of this pen. I must bring them also. They too will listen to my voice and there shall be one flock and one shepherd. The reason my father loves me is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down by my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. This command I received from my father. Let me pause there. The hireling does not have the same commitment that the shepherd does. And what is the difference? Is that the shepherd is so committed to his sheep that he's willing to lay down his life for those sheep. Which brings us to this final aspect of this metaphor, to consider the person at the center of this metaphor. Consider the, the shepherd willing to lay down his life. Let's look at that finally. There's some uh, fascinating dynamics to Jesus calling himself the good shepherd. First, Abe drew this point out last week, so I'm not going to rehash it, but this is one of seven different I am statements of Jesus. And if you remember, uh, to take upon himself this I am statement is to actually to give himself the very name of God. Uh, back in Exodus 3, we see God refer to himself as the great I am. And so Jesus here is taking upon himself the name of God. And it was a name that was so sacred to the Jewish people that they would not even speak that name. Even today, will not even speak that name. Yet here Jesus is taking that name for himself. Plus, Jesus doesn't say that uh, I am a good shepherd. Instead, Jesus says that I am the good shepherd. And this is significant as well because while there are many other figures all throughout Scripture, people like Moses and King David who were actually shepherds uh, and were also viewed as shepherds of their people, only God himself took on this uh, identity of as the true shepherd, the good shepherd. Jesus, as he has done before, is taking upon himself not only the name of God, but in taking on that title of the good shepherd, is also claiming to possess all the characteristics associated with the good shepherd. You know, in Greek, that word good has a very broad meaning. It can mean noble and wholesome and good and beautiful. And so what Jesus is saying about himself as the shepherd, he's saying, I am the fullest and complete picture of goodness, that I am righteousness, that I am beauty. As the good shepherd, Jesus is claiming himself to be the ultimate above all things. 
But as this one with great power, as the one with authority over all things, as the one who is goodness, who is righteousness, who is beauty, what does this good shepherd do with all of that power, all of that authority? Well, if you remember at the beginning of John, as John first sees Jesus coming, do you remember what John proclaimed when he saw Jesus? He didn't proclaim, behold, the shepherd comes to take away the sins of the world. Do you remember what John said? John said, behold, the Lamb of God comes to take away the sins of the world. Meaning Jesus Christ, the good shepherd, makes himself a lamb. He steps into the experience in the lives of his sheep, and he does so in order that by faith, our sin, our waywardness, our wandering might be dealt with in its fullest. This is the cross of Christ, the good shepherd becoming a sacrifice for you and for me. This is how he uses his power and authority as the good shepherd. He becomes a lamb for us. But that's not all. Because though Jesus died on the cross as a, as a sacrifice for the sins of many, we also just uh, heard in that passage that though he lays down his life, he also has the power for it to be raised up again. And we know that not only does he die, but he's also resurrected to life. And then we're told that he's seated at the right hand of God the Father, exalted and glorious. And if we fast forward to another book of the Bible that John wrote, uh, the book of Revelation, we see John describing one of my favorite images in the whole Bible. John is describing a heavenly scene. And in Revelation 5, we get a picture of that scene. It's a worship service. All the thousands upon thousands around the throne worshiping and singing and proclaiming. And this is what John says in verse 11. I'll read, let me read this to you. John says, Then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels, numbering thousands upon thousands, and ten thousands times ten thousand. They encircled the throne and living creatures and the elders. In a loud voice they were saying, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. Then I heard every creature in heaven on earth and under the earth and the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. Here's what I love about that scene is that even in heaven, we are reminded of our good shepherd becoming a lamb for our sake. Because the great hope of the Christian faith is not just that we have a good shepherd, someone watching over us. The hope of the Christian faith is that that good shepherd becomes a lamb for us so that we too, as we trust and follow him, might also experience that same resurrected life that he's experienced. The good shepherd becomes a lamb because he's so committed to those that he loves. Thanks be to God. This is the hope of the Christian faith. The last thing I'll say, let me... Uh, close with this. You know, I started off by saying that the metaphor of the shepherd and the sheep is, for some, offensive, but it's also encouraging. But I said that the gospel actually requires us to have both, and that one without the other is lacking a true understanding of the fullness of the gospel. And then in some way, most of us here are erring one way or the other. We tend to err one way or the other. Here's what I mean by that. Some err by only believing in the offense of this metaphor. Meaning you, you beat yourself down, you're full of shame, you're worthless, you're unworthy, you're undeserving, you're just a dumb sheep. 
And so as a result of seeing only the offense of this metaphor, we struggle to enjoy the love and the affection and the care of the shepherd who knows you by name and who is deeply committed to you. But then there's others who err in the other direction. Maybe you err and you, you believe the encouragements, meaning you know you're special. You know you're worthy. Of course the shepherd loves me. Of course the, the shepherd knows everything about me and fully and completely accepts me. But as a result, you struggle to see yourself as a wandering sheep, incapable of knowing what is best for you, resistant to the leading and the guiding of the shepherd. But I want us to hear that the cross of Christ, the resurrection, right, this picture of eternity in Revelation 5 upends both errors because our sin and our wandering require Jesus to lay down his life for us, which means that we are prone to wandering. We don't actually know what we need and that that wandering is so severe that the good shepherds lay down his life for you. But at the same time, yes, though you are prone to wandering, Though you, in many ways, are a dumb sheep, you're not dumb to the point that God cares nothing for us, but rather he steps into our experience by becoming a sheep himself. In doing so, he reveals that, yes, we are flawed, but we are also loved. And that, my friends, is the gospel. We need to hold both of those things in tension. We need him, and we are fully and accepted and loved by him as we trust in him. And so I pray that for all of us, we'd walk away today knowing this. Our good shepherd watches over us, protects us, provides for us, but also laid down his life for us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your great grace and mercy toward us. We thank you that in Jesus we see the fullest picture of a shepherd that cares for us, a shepherd concerned about our concerns, a shepherd that, out of love, not only cares about our experiences, but steps into them by becoming a lamb, a sacrificial lamb, laying down his life for us. And that in the end, in the glories of eternity, we will see and experience and be reminded of the wholeness and fullness of his care as both the good shepherd and the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. But until that day that we experience it fully, would you now, by your Spirit, remind us daily of what he has done, that yes, we are wandering and we are in need of a shepherd to keep us in line, but we also have a shepherd willing to give it all for our sake. Help us to hold that intention. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Redeemer East Harlem podcast. For more information on our church and how you can support what God is doing through our church, go to www.reh.nyc.